you'll please turn with me to Acts 12. We're continuing on in our study in the book of Acts. If you're just joining us this morning, welcome. We've been working our way through the book of Acts for the last couple months here. And our text this morning kind of closes out the first half of the book of Acts. So the focus going forward will be the ends of the earth or the um, shifting away from Jerusalem even more than we've seen the last couple weeks where we'll come back for the Jerusalem council. But other than that, it's not much here. And then Peter, who's been one of the main characters so far, um, he's only mentioned one more time after this. So it's kind of shifting away to Paul and his missionary journeys. And so we're going to see what's happening in, Jer in Jerusalem as the kingdom's going forward. And we're going to just take this in sections and kind of let the narrative unfold for us. So we're going to begin with verses 1 to 5. So hear God's word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you show us how you work in the world. God, we ask that you'd be with us this morning, that your spirit would illumine this to our hearts and minds, that we would see and hear and understand, that you would change us and shape us and make us more like Jesus, that you would increase our faith in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've seen over the last couple months, the word of God continues to spread. It went from Jews to Gentiles, and then last week it went to Antioch, so it's just starting to explode, and uh, it hasn't always been easy. Some of the Jewish leaders were imprisoning, beating, and killing followers of Jesus. We saw Saul affirming the, the killing of Stephen for preaching the gospel, but that didn't actually slow the spread of the church. It actually sped it up made it go faster, it quickened it. A bunch of Christians left Jerusalem and took the word of God with them, proclaiming it wherever they went. And Saul was even on his way to arrest some more Christians when he's converted. And then God uses him to spread the kingdom even more. But there's always been this external opposition to the gospel. There's always been this external opposition to the church, to God's people. We're seeing more of that this morning. We... Um, it's ramped up a little bit here. The gospel's been spreading. Now it's the apostles themselves who seemed a little bit safe earlier. But now they themselves are being killed and imprisoned. So as we look at this passage, we're going to ask, how will the word of God continue to spread when the world is against it? And we just read the approach Herod is taking. Right? Violence. He takes the apostle James and executes him. We don't even hear what started this, what brought it about, if there was... Any side of inciting incident, it just jumps right in. Violence and an execution of one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles. But Herod likes it. He sees that it pleases the Jews. And the more he can curry favor with the local leaders, the more he can keep the peace and maintain his influence. That's why he's down in Jerusalem. He lives in Caesarea. But he's down in Jerusalem for the Passover feast and for the time of unleavened 
bread. Though he's not a Jew, he's down there visiting them for their highest festival of the year. And as icing on the cake, he's taking out their opponents, people they see as threats. So he's playing this political game, and he's putting points on the board. He killed James. One down, 11 left to go. Then he arrests Peter. There couldn't be trials during this festival, so he's holding him in prison. He's waiting to bring him out until the last day. So he holds him in prison. He puts four squads of soldiers to guard him, which sounds a little uh, overkill, but it's four squads of four people, and they'd rotate like three hours. So it's, it's a lot, but it's not like crazy. It's a lot, it's a lot Elijah. I said that. But. And then we hear in verse 5 that uh, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. So how will the word of God continue to spread when the world is against it? Sometimes it looks like it won't. This isn't a good spot. Imagine being part of the church here. right? The apostles, the ones who were with Jesus, who have been performing signs to authenticate the power of the gospel. They're just being knocked off. As I mentioned earlier, we turn the page and jump from the crucifixion to the resurrection. We do that with this too. We, we want it reconciled as quickly as possible. We don't sit in it. But we can't just gloss over James here. He's beheaded. He really died. So where is God in that? We hear that the church prays earnestly for Peter. Did they not do the same for James? I'm sure they did. And yet the Lord answered their prayer with a no. Does that mean there was something defective in them or in their faith? That if they'd been better, if they'd prayed harder, if they'd had more faith, then James would still be here? No. And we can't carry that burden either. We can't carry that weight. That it's on us and how we perform and how well we pray. No. We entrust ourselves to a good father who loves us, who is working everything out ultimately for his glory and for our good. I mean, we see this too with Jesus when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he dies. It's the only other time, Luke wrote Luke and then Acts of the Apostles. It's the only other time Luke uses this language of praying earnestly. Is Jesus there? Jesus prays that the Lord would let this cup pass from him. Yet not what he wills, but the Father wills. But Jesus' desire is that it would pass, right? (laughs) It's not anything defective in Jesus. He couldn't have prayed harder. He couldn't have had more faith. But it was the Father's will that he would drink that cup. And so he did. So we don't get to understand. We don't get to know why right now on this side of glory. Just half a sentence here. James is gone. But we can entrust ourselves to God knowing he is good. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who was sent to a concentration camp along with her family during World War II for hiding Jews. And her father died in prison there and her sister died just before she was released. And one of the illustrations she would use afterwards is that of a tapestry. If you've ever seen a tapestry embroidery where the front looks great and the back's just 
gross, just a bunch of threads all mixed up. She would bring that. She'd hold up the back, the messy side, and say, does God always grant what we ask for in prayers? Not always. Sometimes he says no. That's because God knows what we do not know. Say, look at this piece of embroidery. The wrong side is chaos. But look at the beautiful picture on the other side, on the right side. And she'd flip it, and it's this crown symbolizing eternal life. Say, we see the wrong side, but God sees his side all the time. One day, we shall see the embroidery from his side and thank him for every answered and unanswered prayer. We see the mess, don't we? We see and experience the pain and heartache of living in this fallen world. We live in a world that is opposed to God, that is opposed to his truth, that is opposed to us. And yet God, in his sovereignty, is working out something better than we could imagine. This passage is about persecution, about being opposed because of the gospel, because of Christ. We don't want to downplay or disregard that. In many places around the world, they experience persecution kind of in these same ways, this threat of imprisonment, threat of death. For most of us, it's much lighter than that. It's not to say it's not real. The world truly does oppose us, even here, even in our country, where we enjoy religious freedoms. We are opposed because the world opposes Christ and we follow him. But it's helpful to have this perspective. But the truth is that God's sovereignty can apply beyond persecution as well. It can apply to other pains and realities of living in this broken and fallen world where things are not as they ought to be. Where we experience sickness and death sometimes out of nowhere and seemingly at random. We say, why me? Why my loved ones? We know the effects of abuse and addiction. We know the difficulties of marriage and family and relationships. We often feel helpless and things seem hopeless at times. But God has not left. God is at work. Dan's been gone a few weeks, so I'm going to step in and be like Dan and read a poem for you. I don't think I've ever read a poem before in this sermon, but I know Dan has, so. This is uh, Corey Ten Boom's poem, Life is But a Weaving. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. It's dark at times. We don't see the light. We don't see how it's going to work out. But we entrust ourselves to God 
knowing he loves, he cares, and he knows us. It's a bleak picture. Peter's in prison, but the church is praying. See what happens next in verses 6 to 11. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So we have this miraculous deliverance. An angel of the Lord and light just appears in the cell with him. And delivers Peter. So four guards that should have been awake that only have to work for three hours. Can't stay awake for that long. They're asleep. Chains fall off of him. They walk right past the guards through multiple gates. Then they're at the main gate and it just opens. And they're outside and then the angel's gone. Look at Peter in this. He's in prison, right? It's the night before he's about to be killed. And what's he doing? He's sleeping. And he's out. Right? Angel doesn't come in. Peter, get up. He has to whack him. You know? Get up. Hurry. I don't know about you, but... Uh, I don't know that I'd be sleeping. There are a lot lighter things than my impending death that uh, keep me awake. If I did sleep, I'm sure I'd be restless. But not Peter. Peter's at peace. He knows the Lord and he trusts the Lord and he knows that even if he dies, he lives. He saw it with Jesus. He knows it for himself. He has nothing to fear, nothing to be anxious about. He knows that God has him in his hands. And so he sleeps. It's very reminiscent of Psalm 3 where David's fled from Absalom, his son, and people are wanting to kill him. And he cries out to the Lord and the Lord answers. And then it says, and I lay down and slept. And I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I'm more like the uh, disciples in the boat while Jesus is sleeping. <laughs> Freaking out, saying, don't you care? Peter's at peace. He's facing his death, but knows he is safe with the Lord who has conquered death. Nothing left to fear. And then he's escaping, right? And he thinks he's just seen a vision. 
He's half asleep going through these motions. Just doing what he's told, not thinking for a second that it's real. And it says he comes to, he comes to himself. Once he's outside, the angel disappears. He's like, oh, I'm standing out here. This is real. What's his response? Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. The Lord did it. Peter doesn't even realize it's happening as it's happening. How can the word of God continue to spread when the world is against it? God has to do it. It's not on us. We can't muster it up. That's the reality. We don't have to make it happen. We can't make it happen. God calls us to be faithful where he has us, but to leave the results to him. And what do we see here? We see a praying church, a prisoner who's at peace, and a God miraculously stepping in to deliver. Not only does God have to do it, but he does it in ways that we wouldn't expect or even imagine. Verses 12 to 17. When Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them, to be, motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. It's in the middle of the night, and what's the church doing? They're gathered together praying. And the scene is just true to life. It's funny. I love how the Bible doesn't polish things up. It just is real. It's funny reading it. Like Peter's out in the courtyard knocking on the gate. Young girl hears it, so excited, she doesn't open the door. She goes to tell everybody first. (laughs) And they think she's lost it, but she says, no, no, he's here, he's here. Crazy. It's his angel, it's a ghost. And while they're having this back and forth, Peter, who just escaped prison, right, (laughs) is standing out on the street just banging on the door. If you've ever watched Prison Break or Shawshank Redemption, uh, you don't want to stand out on the street banging on a door right after you break out of prison. They finally open it and they're amazed. You can imagine the excitement. I'd be excited if I saw that. Keep it down. (laughs) God has done this. Tells them what the Lord has done, how he brought him out of prison, how the Lord has answered their prayer. Now, some uh, people will criticize the church here, that though they've been praying for this, their reaction shows that they didn't really believe God would do it. Uh, I don't think that's quite fair. I just think this is even beyond what they expected. That's what God does. I mean, Paul writes in Ephesians 3 that he's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or imagine. 
and this is it, right? In the middle of the night, he just shows up at the door. No one would be expecting that. It makes no sense. But even in that Ephesians passage, we notice what Paul says. He says, ask more than we pray for. Because it starts there. As we mentioned before, God sometimes says no to our prayers. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to ask them. Or to ask boldly for things. He says no about James, but he does even more than they imagined with Peter. It'd be like Lucy coming to us saying, I want to go to Plowman Park and see the animals. Say, no, Lucy. She asks again later. I want to go to Plowman Park and see the animals. No. She just hears the no. She doesn't realize we have other commitments, other plans, even things for her. But she knows we love her. She keeps asking. And then we say one morning, Lucy, we're not going to go to Plowman Park. We're going to the Milwaukee Zoo. Where you don't just get to see goats and little pigs. You get to see lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. It's even better. That's how God works. But I think we tend to go off course in a couple of different ways. One, we try to make things happen ourselves. We try to produce the results. Be like Lucy saying she's going to Plomin. And we say no, and then she says, well, I'm leaving anyway, and walks out the front door. Right? She can't get there. She can't do it. I think this is what we try to do. We think we can do things in our own strength, and we think we can work things out on our own. And there are issues, what do we do? We work harder, we buckle down. Societal things, we protest, we write letters. We write emails these days, no one writes anything. But We post on Facebook. We start organizations, we support certain politicians, certain political parties. And we're empowered to affect change through all these different channels, right? None of them are inherently wrong. I think we should do these things. But I would ask, are your efforts built on earnest prayer? Do you recognize that God actually has to work or your labor is in vain? And do you trust that he cares for you and hears you? This is especially true and obvious in the spread of the gospel over history. We read of times where God's spirit has worked in especially visible and obvious ways. And do you know what always precedes it? People gathering together and praying. With this, I just encourage you, we try to provide opportunities for this to happen here at Emmaus Road. Um, Luke led us in corporate prayer today every Sunday before the service we meet up in the prayer rooms behind that I don't even know what you call that square thing up there but that's the prayer room up there every Sunday morning at nine o'clock you're all invited to come come pray with us first Wednesday of every month we have citywide prayer here at the church you can gather with God's people and pray I encourage you to take advantage of these opportunities we are dependent upon God One of the ways we express that is through prayer. We need him to work. If he doesn't work, we might as well not be doing anything.
The first thing is we try to make it happen ourselves. I think the second is that we grow weary in our prayers. Don't we? God answers a prayer with a no or a wait, we stop asking. We couch our prayers in timid ways. We don't want to ask big and then it not happen. But after James is killed, they didn't say, well, God's not going to do it, or he will, whatever. They earnestly pray to God. And they trust God to answer out of his goodness, however he chooses to answer. So how can the word continue to spread even when the world is against it? God has to do it. And when we know that, we will earnestly go to him in prayer. We still ask, what about the opposition? Will there ever be justice? Look at verses 18 to 23. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with, in, with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So Herod looks, but he can't find Peter. Peter left. Just because God's sovereign doesn't mean we should be foolish either. But Herod orders the guards to be put to death. This was common practice. If you were guarding someone and you lost them, you get what they were getting. So then he goes back home now that the Passover is done and he can't kill Peter to please the Jews. And it's weird, he's angry with someone else too. People of Tyre and Sidon, they come before him. And he looks all fancy. Uh, Josephus, early church historian, says that his clothes were knit together of all uh, silver thread. So he's just shining, just reflecting Looks all fancy, sits on his throne, gives the speech. People shout, the voice of God. And he loves it. He soaks it up. He doesn't do what we see Paul do in a couple chapters. When Paul and Barnabas are there and the people of Lystra come to him, he says, wait, what are you doing? Stop. We're men like you. Turn from these vain things to the living God. No, he loves it. An angel of the Lord strikes him down. And he breathed his last and was eaten by worms. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. What brought about his death? He did not give God the glory. The reality is that this is the end for all who oppose God. It might not happen in dramatic fashion in this life like that. But if not, it will when Christ returns in judgment. 
we can have confidence that every wrong will be made right. That full justice will be administered. That the penalty for every sin will be paid. The question is whether you will pay it or whether Christ will have paid it for you. We were made to glorify God, but we have rebelled against him. We have put ourselves in his place. We want glory. We want to have influence and power. We want, to be, we want others to be pleased with us. Just like Herod. We might hide it a little bit better. Maybe it doesn't look as brutal in our lives. But those same seeds are in all of us. The same rejection of the God who made us and loves us. But Jesus came and died on the cross in place of all who trust in him, paying the price for that sin, that we might be free, that we might have life, that we might glorify God. That he might be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. We no longer need fear death or judgment because we have been declared righteous and been reconciled to God. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to fix anything. You just recognize your need and trust in Christ as your provision. Giving him the glory. And we don't have to worry or be anxious no matter what we face because we know that God wins. Like Herod looks powerful at the beginning. Strikes him down like that. The Lord will brook no rivals. Even if it looks like sin and death and wickedness reign, we know the day is coming when Jesus will return. When all who oppose him will be judged, when there will be no more sickness or death or mourning or crying or pain, where death will be no more. Everything will be made new. There will be no more opposition. The script will just be flipped completely. As it is here, where Herod said on stopping the spread of the gospel, it ends with him breathing his last, and then in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Jesus summed it up well in John 16, what it looks like for us to live in this time of already and not yet, where he's come and saved us, and yet we still live in this fallen world with the presence of sin all around us. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Turn to him. Trust in him. There are times when life is hard, when it looks like we will suffer defeat. But God is at work for his glory and for our good. And there is nothing that can stop him or the spread of his kingdom.